Open your Bibles to Revelation 19. We're going to be back in Revelation. It's been a month and a half since we were. And since it's been uh, that long of a time, I think a little bit of a review would be helpful. Um, I have been, ever since we started Revelation, I have just continually been looking forward to this point in the letter from 19, 20, and 21. And if you remember, I mentioned that in chapter 14, there was this kind of tilting that was happening in the storyline. Up to chapter 14, the storyline focuses a lot on um, the evilness and the wickedness on the earth and God's judgment on the earth. And we had these stories of demon locusts going across the landscape and massive judgments coming and just all kinds of nasty things that are dark, the persecution, the beast rising from the sea, the other beast coming, the uh, serpent coming, and, and all of this dark, scary stuff is happening. And in chapter 14, the story begins to shift just a bit, begins to tilt just a bit. And it begins to move away from all of that dark, heavy stuff to uh, light and some heavy stuff to come. But the victory of the Lamb in chapter 14 is really where you start to see that tilting of the storyline towards the victory of the Lamb. And now we, by the time we've reached chapter 19, we have seen the destruction of Babylon, the prostitute, which we'll talk just a little bit about here this morning. And, uh, and, and we're moving into the victory of the Lamb. Chapter 17 and 18, which I'm not, I decided um, in the break between Thanksgiving and now, I made the decision not to work through chapter 18. And, um, I made that decision because a lot of chapter 18 is just, so chapter 17 is the expansion of a verse in chapter 16, where it says that the great city is split into three parts. That's Jerusalem, there's this massive earthquake. Jerusalem is split into three parts. And then, the, and then that causes the cities of the nations to collapse. And in doing so, chapter 16 says that God remembered Babylon the great and he made her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And, and chapter 17 explains the mystery of Babylon, who she is, and that she is now destroyed. And chapter 18 is basically she's dead. And this is what that looks like over and over and over again. And um, I could just preach a message on God's wrath and fury against evil and his justice. Um, and, and I'm not shying away from that. I just feel like chapter 18 is so repetitive that it, it, um, it's not necessary for me to preach on it. And I'm going to ask you that you go back and you read chapter 18 and look at who's mourning, which I'll talk a little bit about that as well this morning. But I'll touch on chapter 18 this morning, but I decided not to do a full message on it. But chapter 18 tells us the specifics of her demise and basically the people who mourn their past, her passing. So um, I'll leave chapter 18 to you in general. And this morning then we're going to look at chapter 19, which um, is, is at the first part of chapter 19 are two celebrations side by side. And um, we're going to cover quite a bit of material with that this morning. So to that end, I'm going to read chapter 19 verses 1 to 10. And, uh, and then we will kind of try to unpack these verses this morning. So beginning in chapter 19 and reading at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you who fear him, small and great. And just take a break here for a moment. And I just wanted to have you note that this, this praise is the reversal of what we saw earlier, like in chapter 5 and other places, where there is a voice from the throne that then is somehow repeated or emphasized by the elders that surround the throne. And then often it goes to angels in general, and then it goes to this multitude of people. Here, as it celebrates the destruction of Babylon, it goes in reverse order. It's going from the peoples of the earth who see this and rejoice over what God has done, moving back to a voice coming from the throne. So it's just an interesting turnaround of events. Picking up in verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. How many of you have read the book, A Tale of Two Cities? Good, this is more than I expected. If you've read it, you'll be very familiar with the opening part of his book and what is a relatively famous sentence. If you haven't read it, you may have heard this statement anyway. But it begins with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. There's a little bit more to the statement. But as I was studying this, uh, over the holidays and thinking through Revelation over the holidays, that phrase came to my mind, the best of times and worst of times. Age of wisdom and an age of foolishness, a season of light, a season of darkness, a spring of hope, a winter of despair. We had everything, we had nothing. That's, that's what's going on in Revelation. You've got these, as I mentioned earlier, you've got these contrasts, you've got this, this story unfolding of what is not just the end of the world or the end of human history, but it is the unfolding of what God has been doing from eternity past to bring to fruition the events that are going to be happening in chapter 19, chapter 20, and chapter 21. What we are seeing in Revelation is the ultimate demise of everything that opposes God, of everyone that opposes God. And what we're seeing in Revelation is the victory of the Lamb as opposed to the defeat and destruction of Satan. And we are seeing the victory of God's people. And we are seeing 
the judgment of God's people against the judgment of Satan's people. And ultimately we are seeing the end of Satan and the end of sin. And we are coming to, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit in the sermon here by saying this, but we are coming to the fruition of all that God has intended in his plan of salvation of his people. We have, you know, when you talk about salvation, there's three ways to look at salvation. When you see that word salvation in scripture, you see that word saved in scripture. Some people will say, I'm saved. And that's accurate. No problem with that. Other terms have kind of come into play in more recent years. But I'm saved, or God saves. And that's true. There is this point in time for each of us, whether we realize it's happening or not, where God is turning our hearts towards himself and he's opening our eyes to what he has said in his word and he's causing us to believe, to hear and to believe. And and at some point we become saved. There's all kinds of things that go with that. There is this Second aspect that we often say technically and academically, I am being saved or you are being saved. And that's not contradicting the other. Paul himself says you are being saved. And that is referred to the process of what we call sanctification, where God is purifying us and making us into the image of Christ because his ultimate goal for us is to be saved. You say, but I, I, I was saved. Yeah, and you're going to be saved. And Paul uses that kind of language. You have been saved. You are being saved from sin. And one day you will be saved you will be completely saved from sin, and we call that glorification. And that is the ultimate end of God's purpose of redemption from eternity past. He's not done when he saves you and puts you in a place where you are now his child and you are going to dwell with him forever. That's the beginning of the relationship. After that, We're to keep in step with the Spirit as we are being sanctified by the Spirit, made into the image of Christ. And as a verse that I will say later on, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You you will be saved. And Revelation 19, Revelation 20, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 is really the playing out of that last part you will be saved. So that's what we've been looking at as we look at Revelation. And so the tale of two cities really was kind of on my mind, that statement that is most famous, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Revelation lays out the worst and the best. And it maybe most specifically could be applied to chapters 17, 18, and 19. But while Dickens' story focuses primarily on two cities, London and Paris, and Revelation focuses on two cities, the cities of earth, the great city Babylon, and the city of God, what we call heaven, focuses on those two stories. Chapters 17, 18, and 19 focus focus on two female characters. Two women. The first female character is Babylon and all that are aligned with her. And the second female character is the bride of Christ. And she's made up of all who align with Christ. And there's another contrast going here along with these two cities and these two women, and that is the story 
of the way of the earth dwellers who are people who live in opposition to God and his commands and the people of God, the heavenly minded people, those who set their affections on Christ, as Paul says, and they are the people of Christ's kingdom who love him and pursue his ways. And so the story has shifted back and forth between the events on earth to the events of heaven. I don't know if you've noticed that. Hopefully you have. Hopefully I've presented that. But as we read through Revelation, the scene, remember the scenes keep shifting. And one minute you're looking at what's happening on the earth and the next minute you're looking at what's happening in heaven. And oftentimes what's happening in heaven is a response to what's happening in earth, which is what we just saw in what we read. Babylon has been destroyed and heaven's having a party. They're having more than a party actually, but they're very happy in heaven. And the story ends, this is the part that has really become so clear to me as we've been going through Revelation. God originally created that God would dwell with man in the sense that man was in a garden that was supposed to be spread over the face of the earth and God would come to him and commune with him and speak with him direct face to face. Sin broke that. Creation, fall. Christ came as the redeemer to save. Creation, fall, redemption, pointing us forward to restoration and actually recreation. The story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And as we work through the Bible, we see that. As we work through Revelation, we see that. So ultimately the story of the Bible began with God's dwelling with man on earth. And the story ends with God's coming, God's city, God's home, God's dwelling place coming to be on earth. So God is not simply having a home somewhere out there and he comes to visit man once in a while, but ultimately God moves his dwelling place to where man's dwelling place is. And we see the culmination of God's intention from eternity past. That's where Revelation is moving. And the, the great struggle in Revelation is between Satan and his people and Jesus and his people. So the story continually presents to us also the contrast in how Satan's people live, what they follow, what they desire, and ultimately what happens to them in the end. And in contrast to that, what happens to God's people, who they are, how they live, and ultimately what happens to them. And as I said, there's this immediate contrast in 7, 18, and 19 between these two females, Babylon, the wicked prostitute, and the bride of Christ. As we begin chapter 19, we know that Babylon is gone. Babylon hasn't been simply weakened. Babylon hasn't been simply put down temporarily and she's going to come back. That whole struggle of Satan and his people against the people of God as it ebbs and flows with the spread of the gospel and the, uh, and, and the continuing persecution of Satan against the church. But in chapter 19, Babylon is dead. She is gone. And as one writer puts it, chapter 19, the beginning of it is almost a funeral ceremony. But it isn't. <laughs> so today we have this phrase at funerals, a celebration of life, because people don't want to talk about death. And by the way, I would say to you that, that Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning. Funerals are a good time for us to mourn and realize that death comes and consider life now. We're kind of smoothing that over by having celebrations of life. Maybe we need to do both. 
But there isn't a celebration of life happening in chapter 19. There's a celebration of death. God's people and God's heaven is going crazy because Babylon is dead. All of her immoral, evil, self-indulgence, religious influence is gone. When we see churches today that are saying that same-sex marriage is good and having homosexual church leaders is good, that's Babylon. That is Babylon. That is the influence of Babylon in the church. When we see backing off from those people, when we see statistics about the high, extremely high level of immorality in teenagers in the evangelical church, that's Babylon, the influence of Babylon. When we see the inclusion of satanic teachings, and I'm not talking about witchcraft, I'm just talking about false teachings about God creeping into our churches and being proclaimed from the pulpit, that's Babylon. And from all of human history, false worship and idolatry and immorality has been woven into what is called religion. And the Christian religion, and that brings down those people, it brings them to a worship of Satan's world and Satan's values. And the American dream happens to be in that, by the way, folks. That we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we don't need anybody else. And it's better to be independent. And the throwing off of authority that God has commanded us to respect and honor and the pursuit of money as the way to happiness and satisfaction. That's Babylon, where God says we come together under the banner of Christ and we love others, whether they agree with us or not, and we use what's been given to us, not for the benefit of ourselves primarily, but for the benefit of others. That's the kingdom dream. I wanna riff on that a little bit, but I'm gonna wait for another Sunday coming up. I would encourage you to do what I did, not for a purpose of godly means, but I intentionally drove up and down the streets of Wellington Heights this past week. It is sad what human beings are living in. And I don't have a solution. But we excuse it on the basis of, well, they can get ahead just like anybody else can get ahead if they really want it. And there's some things there that we need to nuance out, which I'm going to be talking about coming in March as part of another sermon series, just to get you ready and uh, understand that it's not a reaction. But in heaven, in chapter 19, there's a massive celebration. There's a huge party happening because Babylon is dead. And the question I would ask from, for, of you in relation to that is, as you read chapter 18, ask yourself, would I be one of the people mourning regarding the lack of availability of fine foods and fine silks, fine clothing, fine furnishings? Would I be sad that Babylon is gone 
and I can't get the things that make me happy anymore. Just, that's not even the main point of the sermon. Just just something to think about. Go back and read chapter 18. But Babylon is gone. And in chapter 19, we hear and see the celebration of Jesus' people in response. The Apostle John, standing in the presence of God, listens as the voices of the redeemed shout, Hallelujah, which means praise God. Hallelujah is praise, Yah is God. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. And they shout out hallelujah in response to God's final and complete judgment of Babylon. It's similar to the shouts of praise we hear in 1115. In 1115, the final bowl is poured out and God's people rejoice in heaven. In chapter 11, they cry out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And here in chapter 19, together they shout out about the glory of God's salvation and God's power. And while the words are a little bit different between these two passages, the motivation for their praise is the same. In chapter 11, it's the final judgment of God's enemies. In chapter 19, it's the final judgment of Babylon. And God has proven that he is just, that he is just through his righteous judgment and his punishment of those who have opposed him and his people. Chapter 19 celebration and the celebration in chapter 11 Both are in direct response to a question that is raised in chapter 6. You remember back in chapter 6 with the altar of incense representing the prayers of the saints that go up? And underneath of that altar of incense are a group of people. It says they're under under the altar. And they cried out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth i really find that statement fascinating and since we studied that passage i've thought about it more these are people who have been martyred for their faith they died they've gone into the presence of god They are dwelling in the presence of God. They are seeing who this God is. They see the Spirit. They see Jesus. They see God, which speaks to what happens to a believer when they die. They go into the presence of God. They aren't in some limbo. But But this is the part that kind of fascinates me in thinking about it. They are under the altar, so to speak, and they are watching God and seeing him and they affirm that he is holy and true but they are struggling with something simply put to each one of them it feels like it's been too long that those who have killed them have allowed to exist have been allowed to exist I'm not saying that they're questioning God don't get me there But I I sense this, okay, God, we know everything about you is right. And and yet, why why haven't you done this? Why haven't you avenged our blood? And then I think, no wonder we have so many doubts about God in this life when we can't see him. And we know about him, we can't even see him and we don't see things as right around us. These people are actually in his presence saying, how long are you going to wait? That's really the question. And the reason they're asking that question is because there is a promise that God has made all the way back in Deuteronomy. We looked at it briefly when we talked about Moses' song. All the way back in Deuteronomy in chapter 32, before Moses is taken by God to his death, God takes him up to see the promised land. He's told he can't go in. 
but he can see it and God takes him up there and then he takes his body and he brings death to Moses and he hides his body. And just before Moses dies, he composes this poem, this song that he sings to the people of Israel. He puts it in a song form so that they'll be able to remember it long-term. But he, he says this in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, O God, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. God is worthy of praise because he keeps his promises and he is just. So all the way back there, Moses made a promise on God's behalf. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing the Torah, at the end of his life, Moses speaks these words and writes them down and reminds the people that God is just, he does what's right, and he brings justice, and he avenges their blood. And so here we have these martyrs under the throne who are remembering Moses' promise from God and are saying, how long, O Lord, sovereign and true, till you avenge our blood? How long till you keep what you have promised? And the answer is before us in chapter 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The question of chapter six has been answered. It actually was answered. It comes up several times in Revelation because the story keeps moving forward to a point and then goes back and moves forward to that point and goes back and moves forward to that point and goes back and moves forward to that point. And now we're at that point and Babylon is destroyed and God in his judgments of, of Babylon has proven that he is righteous and just. And then suddenly in verse six, another chorus of praise begins to ring out as John hears what's called, what he calls again, the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals and of thunder. The, the whole praise worship time just got amped up a little bit, a lot. It went from the voices of a multitude to the voices of a great multitude and the roar of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah and our gaze is turned from the smoking ashes of the whore to the pure and beautiful bride of Jesus and the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride is ready she's clothed in fine linen bright and pure. So there's a celebration that Babylon is gone, but the celebration that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come is far greater. There's far more excitement in heaven that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come than there is even in the destruction of Babylon. Over my life, I have had a very good memory. And um, I'm very frustrated that my memory is, is shot at this point in my life. COVID did bad things to my memory. Terry and I were talking about on, on Saturday, I guess it was, or Monday, maybe it was Monday. Um, Rick had sent an email because there was a confusion over a billing thing and, um, and, and I read it and I, um, I'm just very thankful for it. I even praised you, Rick, to the people at the 
insurance company, just so you know that. Know that. I said, he's, a, he's an awesome guy to work with, and, and when he got confused, and I wanted to jump on this right away because it confuses me too. And, um, but I, I, I could, so I, it was, a, it was a problem with the billing with our insurance company, and they were re going to refer us to collections if we didn't pay. And it was just like, what's going on here? And I could vaguely remember that, that this, there was some kind of a thing going on with this and uh, some transfer, and, but I couldn't remember. And, and I was, I actually, Tuesday morning in the morning, early in the morning, woke up and was just fretting over this bill. I wasn't sleeping. And I wasn't sleeping in part because I was embarrassed because I was afraid that I had messed this whole thing up and put us in a place because I hadn't taken care of what I was supposed to do. I put us in a place where we had a collection agency coming after us, which is not a good look as a pastor in case you're wondering. You know, it's kind of things you're supposed to take care of. And so then at breakfast, I, I said to Terry, do you remember what happened with this? And then started looking through some things and started pulling it back together. And, and Terry was starting to email me documentation and, and all of our records and stuff. And well, lo and behold, we had, we had identified everything a lot. We'd done everything that we were supposed to do and it looked really organized and it looked really good. But I was slaying awake at night because I couldn't remember if we'd taken care of it or not. Where in the past, that was something I would have been able to just click right off and tell the person, yeah, we did this. So my memory's getting shot and in much worse ways that it's doing it now. My short-term memory is bad, so please never get offended if you've told me something and I say, I don't remember that because it's just the way it is now. Um, and yes, I've been tested and they tell me I'm fine. I think I told you that. But there's a bad side to having a really good memory. And the bad side to that is I remember every bad thing than anyone has ever done to me. It's a horrible thing to have. And I, so long-term memory, I remember things. It's the short-term memory that's not great. And I only remember what the person did to me. I can tell you word for word what they said. I, mean, I was known for, if you had a conversation with me and there was a disagreement, I knew everything you said and could repeat back to you exactly what was said. Those new, those new commercials with their instant replay, I would have never lost any of those because I just remembered what people said. That is not a good thing. And so I could hold a grudge really, really well. But I would say this, I think that where you can hold a grudge really, really well, when forgiveness comes, there's a lot of release and there's a lot of celebration that can take place in that moment. And here, they've been celebrating because memories of injustice are now wiped out. I don't think we're going to be spending eternity with God remembering all the evil that's been done to us. I don't think we're going to spend eternity in God remembering all of the loss of this life. Eternity with God is a time of massive celebration and massive happiness. Our gaze changes from the smoking ashes to what God has accomplished. And she's described, the bride of Christ is described as clothed in the finest linen that is bright and pure and I want to ask you, who is the one who wears white 
in the presence of the king. Who's the king? In this storyline, who's the king? Anybody want to take a stab at that? It's really one option. It's really easy. Anybody want to bail me out on this? Jesus. He's the king and he's the bridegroom. I don't know how many of you have been to weddings, how many weddings you've been to. Um, I've never been a massive fan of weddings. I, I don't enjoy going to them. Um, uh, I do them, and I enjoy doing them, although they're extremely stressful. I've done far more funerals than I've done weddings, but they're extremely frustrating because if you mess up your part in the wedding, you're going to be forever remembered as messing up in that person's wedding. Like my brothers who did my wedding, my one brother asked Terry if she took me to be her lawful wedded wife. And I was so nervous in the wedding, I never even heard that in the vows part. Terry did and corrected it. And when everybody, when she corrected it, everybody started laughing. And at first I was like, why is everybody laughing? Because I was so nervous and I wasn't, I was just scared to death. Not because I was, getting married, but because I was afraid I was going to mess up Terry's wedding because I was such a goofball. So I, it, was, it was just stressful. And everyone I've done since has been stressful. When, when Rachel, our oldest, got married, I did the wedding and officiated the ceremony, which is hard because you're happy, but you're crying. And, but I got to the point where um, I, have, I have a manuscript that I do, and I use that manuscript for each ceremony with little changes in it that they want but I've got I've actually got the script with the person's name and what I say to them and their name and what they say in response and that kind of thing and I got to Andrew's part and I had to ask him Andrew do you take Rachel to be your lawful wedded wife and I had used the script and hadn't changed the name and I knew it wasn't his name. And I was, so I've got my little thing in front of me, my little, my little wedding booklet in front of me, and I'm looking at it, and I, I just stopped. You know, and there's all these people, and they're standing in front of me, and I'm just thinking, I cannot remember his name. And then, <laughs> and then there's this panic that sets in, and you're trying to, and it's just like, this is my daughter's wedding, and I can't remember her fiance's name and what do you do finally I just looked up and said um, I'm sorry but I forgot your name I mean it was just like well, I, didn't, I had no other option I was at that point and I'm forever remembered as having do, done that so it's stressful to do weddings but this is a wedding I'm looking forward to being a part of and I've what I like about weddings my favorite point of the wedding when I'm officiating and I watch for this is when the bride walks in and the groom is standing here. And, and she comes, so, so there's this moment where she appears in the back and, and it's like for the first time ever this guy is seeing her in a way that he he's just hasn't seen her before. And there's a look in his eyes and there's a look on his face. And as she stands back there, there's just a look on her face and a look in her eyes. And when you're officiating, to see that, it, the joy of the wedding, my, my, my favorite part is not when they walk out. My favorite part is that moment as they look at each other. And I want you to imagine what it's going to be like at the marriage supper of the Lamb as the king stands and waits for his bride. I don't know that that ceremony is going to be just like ours today. But Jesus, the pure and righteous king, will be standing there in all of his glory and all of his righteousness. You know, I have never seen a bride walk in the back and go, 
Okay, you know, I've never seen that. I have seen other things at weddings. I have seen the police in the church parking lot because the groomsmen just got into a fist fight or are going to get into a fist fight because one of the best men slept with the maid of honor the night before and they're all married. I've seen that. I've seen all kinds of interesting things at weddings. But I've never seen a bride standing in the back looking like she doesn't belong. And this wedding ceremony is the King of Kings in a venue that's pure and holy. And the bride walks in and she's beautiful. She's dressed in the finest of clothes and her identity is, according to Revelation 19, she's pure. In contrast to Babylon, who is as moral as you can possibly get, the bride is pure and she's pure in the sight of the groom. And she's pure in the sight of the groom's father. And who is this bride? Who is this bride who stands in, in glory and purity and belongs? Revelation 20, 21 tells us that John sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven to the earth and the statement is said that she is prepared as a bride or, or adorned for husband. And then later on, he says that an angel takes him up on a high mountain and shows him the bride, the wife of the lamb. It would appear that the events in chapter 19 are happening just prior to the events in chapter 21. She's at the wedding ceremony now. In chapter 21, she's coming down. The new Jerusalem, this city, is the bride of Christ. But what I want you to think about this morning, that this wife, this bride of Christ, is comprised of all the saints of all time, fulfilling Isaiah's promise in Isaiah 51, Isaiah 54, that the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer and your maker is your husband. Those redeemed by the blood of the lamb are gathered together to bring fruition to all God has planned for the salvation of his people. She's beautiful in his sight. He's not taking her as his, as his wife simply because God the Father wants that. He loves her. He loves her so much he died for her. She is his treasured possession. She's clothed in fine white linen, speaking of her righteousness and her victory. And I want you to understand something, that that will be you if you're a child of God. That will be you. I want you to understand that when you see Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb, as the child of God, you are not going to be cowering in a back corner hoping that nobody notices you. You're not going to be wondering if you should be there. You're not going to be wondering if you belong. You're not going to be wondering if he really wants you. You will be there as a part of the bride of Christ because he gave his life for you to redeem you because he loves you that much. And you will be standing there worthy of that moment because he has made you pure.
You know, I think that as God's people today, there's a lot of us who fear death because we just aren't quite sure what's going to happen after we die. We approach, we, we live life not thinking about death, and then something happens in our body that they tell us that we're, we've got so many weeks, so many months, maybe so many years. And there's this sudden urge in us to get as much of Babylon as we can. I hate to say it, but it's, it, it, it's often that way. I got, I got to get what's left of Babylon for me. I got a bucket list. And sometimes there's good things in the bucket. Sometimes it's just Babylon stuff. Stuff that's temporary, stuff that's going to go away. But then in those last final weeks, in those last final days, in those last final hours, there are, there's too often a fixation or a fear of what's next. When I die, what happens next? Am I worthy? Am I good enough? Will he welcome me? Or is a big movie screen gonna come down showing my whole life and it's just not gonna be a good movie? What if my last thought is not a good thought? I want to offer you this to you this morning. We know, you've heard it. You've heard it in the last year or so as we went through Hebrews. You know that right now as a believer, as a person who is trusting in the blood of Jesus, you know that you are commanded and in that command welcomed to come into the presence of the Holy God because Jesus has washed you clean. Hebrews chapter 10, let us come boldly then into the presence of God. And that let us is not a let us, it is a command. Do this. It's not just an invitation. It is a command for us to come into the presence of God. How? Boldly. Right now, in an unglorified state, boldly. Not because you prayed enough prayers, not because you went to church on Sunday, not because you gave so much money, not because you did a good deed, because you have been washed, you have been cleansed. And just prior to that statement, Preceding the therefore let us come boldly is where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no more remembrance of it. That's how God sees you. And that's how God commands you to come into his presence now. So when you die, why would you fear coming into God's presence? You will go into God's presence and Jesus' presence and the Holy Spirit's presence who is already in you. You will go into their presence as a part of the bride of Christ. And as John says in his first letter in chapter 3, we will be like him because we will see him as he is.
So you won't be, you say, but I just don't like big crowds. You will love this crowd. From the time that you pass from this life until the events of Revelation 19 happen, you will be in the presence of Jesus ready for the wedding. Clothed in white. And the interesting thing here is this. As you, as you get down this passage, it says it was granted, verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's a bad translation. I don't know how else to say it. Because the word granted in verse 8 doesn't communicate what John was trying to communicate. The word granted to us means you are given the right to. That's how we hear granted. You are given the right to, which is good. But it kind of sets up a works righteousness thing because it says the fine linen is the righteous saints of the, the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted to her to clothe herself in bright linen. So it creates this thing of, well, I've got to do some good things in order he's granted me to be able to do good works so that I can clothe myself in righteous deeds. A better translation of this would be, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. She has been given. And, and, those, and, and the, the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's people is the reverse of work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to create the will and be able to perform his good will. Are you going to be worthy when you get there? Or will you, you know, are, maybe you're thinking, am I going to be like in short shorts and, and a halter top because I don't have as many righteous deeds as the next guy, you know? Am I going to, or am I going to have this, what? You're going to be clothed in the righteous deeds that you have done because of the grace of God's and his work in you. And you are going to be standing as part of this massive group of people, completely forgetful of yourself because your king has arrived. And you have arrived. There's more I could say about this passage. I ran out of time. Someday maybe I'll do the other part. But I want to encourage you this morning. Someone wrote me this week and said, how can I pray for you this weekend? I said, my hope is that from Revelation 19, God's people who have weary souls will be encouraged to keep on going and to look forward to what awaits them. You are deeply loved by Jesus. He gave his life for you. And you are going to be presented before the Father holy and blameless because of Christ's work in you. And you belong now and are fully accepted by the Father because of what Jesus has done for you. And you one day will be part of this great multitude dressed in fine linen and pure because of God's gracious work in you. Simply because you've believed. So my encouragement to you this morning is live like that's already real. 
Live like that's already real. Because it is. Speak like that's already real. Think like that's already real. And live in love with the bridegroom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to be able to understand your word in a way that moves us, not simply for sake of emotion, but moves us to an understanding of who you are and what you have done to us and for us in Jesus. Help us to keep in step with the Spirit and help us long for your return. And in the here and now, help us long for Jesus' return. And in the here and now, Help us to strive to be pure. Help us to not be infatuated with Babylon. And cause us to become more like your son. In his name, amen.